Well, let's just jump in. Exodus 5 and 6. We're covering a lot of ground this morning. Dangerous Dialogue is the title, the big idea. In response to doubt and dereliction, God shows himself faithful. Let's talk about Great Expectations, not the book. I read it. I like Dickens, but um, I, I think in anything we do in life, whether it's a new town or a new job, uh, a new relationship, there's expectations. New baby, right? What about the Christian life? When you became a follower of Jesus, what were your expectations? What were you taught to expect? Too many Christians have an unrealistic and unbiblical view of what it means to follow Jesus. They expect a road paved with rainbows and butterflies. In reality, we learn that the path of obedience is often paved with opposition, hardship, and suffering. Many of you know that well. This is God's will. Amen? And it's for his glory and our growth in godliness. So how does the Lord seek to encourage Moses and the Israelites in the midst of suffering and hardship? By saying, I am and I will. That's really significant. God says, I am. And then in chapter 6, as Jake read, I will. This is what I'll do. So he points to himself and his promises. And that's the key to persevering well into battling uh, doubt and discouragement and fear. It's keeping our eyes on God and keeping our eyes on his promises and his word. Again, I am and I will. So uh, we're, we're moving quickly. Uh, so let me just give some context, some big picture. What have we seen so far? What have we seen so far in our study in Exodus? The people of Israel, the Israelites, are suffering greatly in Egypt. The Lord has seen. He has seen their suffering. And he commissions Moses, supernaturally, that was chapter 3, the burning bush, to announce to Israel what he is about to do and to speak to Pharaoh, saying, the Lord, this is Exodus 3.18, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, some may say, isn't that a half-truth? Wasn't it God's plan to deliver Israel from Egypt once for all, and not simply for a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship God? What are we meant to make of this? Did you catch that? Walt Kaiser writes, God deliberately graded his request to Pharaoh from easier a three-day journey with an understood obligation to return to more difficult, the total release of the enslaved people, in order to give Pharaoh every possible aid in making an admittedly most difficult and economic decision. Had Pharaoh complied, Israel could not have exceeded the bounds of this permission, but would have then presented another presumably more difficult request. Again, God's patience and grace are on display. But of course, God knows that Pharaoh will not comply unless compelled by a what? A mighty hand. And this was God's plan all along for the purpose of displaying his glory before Israel and the nations. Exodus 3, 19 and 20. But I know, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand 
and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. In Exodus 4, this was last week, we are confronted with Moses' reluctance, his doubt, and his unbelief. Moses presents God with reasons for not wanting to go and announced to Israel God's plan of rescue. And finally, Moses flat out requests to be excused. You got the wrong guy. And in each instance, we see God's grace, mercy, and patience. He provides signs. We talked about three last week. The promise of divine presence, the promise of divine enablement and instruction. And finally, God promises a helper, Aaron, for the purpose of accomplishing his purpose. And at the end of Exodus 4, things are looking up. Moses and Aaron relay to Israel God's plans. Supernatural signs are performed, and the people believe, and they worship God. And we're thinking, here we go. It's all on the up and up now. And then we come to Exodus 5 and 6. Exodus 5 begins on a positive note with Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh in obedience to deliver God's message. What we're going to see primarily in Exodus 5 and 6 is a series of dialogues, kind of this back-and-forth conversation. So the best way to read Exodus 5 and 6, the, the series of dialogues between Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh, and the people of Israel, and the Lord, the Lord speaks last, the Lord gets the final word, is to see the first three responses to the Lord in what he's doing. Okay, so... Pharaoh responds to the Lord, Israel responds to the Lord, Moses responds to the Lord, and then the Lord responds. So just I told you I did this last week. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees, so I'm going to give you an outline of Exodus 5 and 6. We didn't read all of it. Uh, I wish I would have had Jake read the genealogy. Bro, there's names I can't even pronounce in there. I, 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 we thought about telling you last night, hey, by the way, we're going to include those names, and so... Um, but that would not have been kind, so we didn't do it, brother. But good job, Joey and Jake. Thank you guys for reading. So here's a quick outline. I, I do believe I put this in your handout. In Exodus 5, 1 to 5, Moses and Aaron dialogue with Pharaoh. They dialogue with Pharaoh. In 5, 6 to 14, Pharaoh increases Israel's workload and suffering. And then in 15 to 19, chapter 5, Israel responds to Pharaoh. What gives Pharaoh, right? And then in verses 20 to 21, Israel responds to Moses and Aaron. They're not happy, okay? Um, and then in 22 to 23, the end of chapter 5, Moses speaks to the Lord. And that's significant. We'll talk about that. In chapter 6, 1 to 8, the Lord speaks to Moses. And this is why I wanted Jake to read this. He reminds Moses of his awesome promises, in 6.9, Moses relays God's message to Israel. 10 to 13, the Lord dialogues with Moses, and Moses is reluctant. And then we have the genealogy. <laughs> and I'll, you know, maybe like, why the interruption? It's important, actually. We'll, we'll talk about that briefly. And then in 28 to 30, the Lord dialogues again with Moses, and again, Moses is reluctant. So that's chapters 5 and 6. But Exodus 6 ends on a note of reluctance, doubt, and unbelief. And if you remember back in chapter 4, it ended on worship and faith. Now it ends, our section, on reluctance, doubt, and unbelief. So what do we learn? These are my points. What do we learn from the responses? 
What do we learn about humanity? What do we learn about God? And sadly, what characterizes the response of Pharaoh, Israel, and Moses is a lack of trust in the Lord. So my my points are simple. Um, We're going to start with Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's response, will unpack it. Then we'll look at Israel's response, unpack it. Moses' response, unpack it. And finally, the Lord's response. So Pharaoh's response, Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. That's kind of how I read that. Like, I'm not going to let him go. <laughs> Pharaoh's response in verse 2 prepares us for what's to come. The Lord is going to answer Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord? And Pharaoh's not going to like it. Not one bit. Because he's going to answer that question with a series of plagues. Culminating in the Passover. And finally, the Exodus. Through his power, God's power displayed before Israel and the people of Egypt, the Lord will answer the question of his identity. His identity. And again, be sure of this. Pharaoh is not going to like the answer. God's signs, his miracles, reveal a haunting and sobering truth to Pharaoh. And here it is. Are you ready? God is the Lord, and Pharaoh is not. That's what Pharaoh's going to learn. God is the Lord, and Pharaoh is not. God is the Lord, and you are not. You're not. At the heart of repentance is abdicating the throne, right? And that's, it's so hard for us to do that. We, we love to be king. We think oftentimes we can do a better job than God. And it's seen in our actions. It's seen in the way we spend our money and our time. Get off the throne. God is the Lord. You are not. I am not. Amen? I, I remember the story. I've shared this before. Handsome Nate Perkins. Right? And so, do you remember the story? Maybe not. I'll, I'll quickly tell it. So when I was living in Boston, going to a seminary, uh, I spent a few years at this rescue mission. And it functioned as kind of like a halfway house uh, for drug addicts and ex-cons. And I went in there more as a chaplain uh, to disciple men. And I'd go in, I'd take the train into Boston, because I lived outside of Boston. I'd take the train to Boston uh, on Tuesdays, and I'd do Bible study, and I'd, I'd go to the different floors, and I'd knock on the women's floor and just say, hey, Bible study in 30 minutes, down to the bottom floor, please come. No one had to come, by the way. No one was forced to come. It, it was, again, an option. And then I'd go up, and I, I spent a summer living with the men. Oh, my goodness, guys. I got so many stories. But I went up there, and I, I told the guys, hey, guys. I'm here. Uh, we're going to start in about 30 minutes. I hope you come. And if I see new faces, I'd, I'd, I'd introduce myself. Hey, I'm Chris. I'm going to seminary at Gordon-Conwell. I, I, I come down here on Tuesdays and Saturdays just to hang out, do Bible studies, and teach, and, uh, and get to know guys. And so always went pretty well. Most guys would say, yeah, cool. Uh, thanks for coming. Some guys would ignore me. Who cares? Well, handsome, handsome Nate Perkins. Again, he's sitting down on a bed, shirt off, taller than me, sitting down, jacked. What that means is he was just beefy, like the Hulk, right? I mean, he was this big dude. It looked like his jaw had been just sculpted out of wood. I mean, I feel like if I punch this guy in the face, which would be the stupidest decision in the world, it would break every bone in my hand. And so he goes, yeah, 
I'm trying to do my accent here. Yeah, I heard about you, kid. I'll be there. I'll be, you get ready for Nate. Man, what? Get ready for Nate? I, you know, and, and basically what he was saying, you don't know me, but you're about to know me. And I did, and, and it was not fun. He, he came at me. Not physically, I would have died. Um, I thought I could hold my own, but not with this guy. No, I mean, he, he would have destroyed, he would eat me up. I mean, he came at me verbally. He made fun of what I was, I was going through Mark's gospel. He made fun of what I was saying. You know, he probably heard some slogans, you know, as far as like, you can't trust the Bible, it's written by men. So he just threw out all these. But I, I answered everything he said very gently for the sake of my own existence. I, I, I had to be gentle. <laughs> I wanted to live that day. And so, um, but he was a jerk. He was. But we became good friends after that. And that's a different story for a different time. But the whole point was, he said, you don't know me, kid, but you're going to get to know me. And Pharaoh, too, was about to find out who God was. He didn't know. Who, who is the Lord, right? <laughs> Who's the Lord? You're about to find out. You're about to find out. So questions are revealing, right? What does Pharaoh's question in the overall response reveal about him? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? This is not a question of definition like Moses in Exodus 3. I mean, Moses is genuine. When I go and, and tell the elders of Israel who you are, what do I say to them? Like, he just wants to know, definition-wise, who are you? That's not what this is. This is a question of defiance. Who are you, Lord? Who is the Lord? It's, a, it's, not, about, I, it's not about definition. It's about defiance. Pharaoh is not asking out of curiosity and wonder, but of disgust. He feels threatened, right? He's, he's king. He's the top dog. He feels threatened and is clearly not willing to abdicate his throne in pride. In Pharaoh's eyes, he was the highest authority in the land. He was divine. No one would tell him what to do. And this is mankind's natural response to God, right? This is Romans 8, 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We Shake our fists at God naturally. Who are you to tell me what to do? What is lacking in Pharaoh's response? Fear and reverence. He doesn't fear the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord. He sees the Lord as competition. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you see the Lord as competition. That's foolish. Don't be the fool. Well, how do Moses and Aaron approach God? How do they approach Pharaoh? How do they approach Pharaoh? What formula did they use? Did you catch it? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The language of thus says the Lord was used to introduce divine speech. It revealed the authority behind the words being communicated. Now, this is interesting. How does Pharaoh address Israel in Exodus 5.10? So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the paradigmatic unbeliever, right? He's the perfect example of an unbeliever. He is unwilling to step off the throne to repent. He believes that his words are on par with God. He's unwilling to admit that he is not the true Lord. He is unwilling to abdicate his position of self-reliance and self-trust and self-praise. And this is seen in verse 9. I mean, this is heavy. Verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. How does he characterize God's word? 
Lying words, bro. Right? I mean, you just want to say, bro. Bro, you're on dangerous ground, man. You better watch it. There appears to be a showdown between God, the Lord, and Pharaoh. But what hope does an ant have at defeating a lion? I mean, come on. Pharaoh is trying to make a point. He's essentially saying, I'll show you who's boss. I'll show you who calls the shots around here. I'll show you who's in control. In Exodus 5.1, we have, this is what the Lord says. And then in Exodus 5.10, we have, this is what Pharaoh says. And again, this is at the heart of human depravity. We compete for control and glory. There's a, a natural distrust in the word of God, a rejection of his word for something else. So Pharaoh is obviously pursuing his own glory. He thinks that if Israel does what he says and joins him in viewing God's word, his promises as a lie, then he will be seen as the superior Lord. Pride before the fall. So let's go back to Pharaoh's response to Moses. But Pharaoh said, this is verse 2 of chapter 5, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I'm not going to let Israel go. What does Pharaoh mean when he says, I do not know the Lord? It means, the Hebrew, to disregard or not take seriously. To disregard or not take seriously. We see this phrase used throughout the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 2.12. Write this down. 1 Samuel 2.12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Oh, what a bummer. Can you imagine, like, you made it in the Bible? Your name's in the Bible, but how are they described? <laughs> worthless men. Oh! Their names have gone down in infamy. That is just terrible. Well, that aside, how are they described? Here's why they're worthless. They do not know the Lord. Which means what? They have disregarded the Lord. They've not taken him seriously as seen in their actions. This is the gravest mistake a person can make, namely to disregard the Lord and to, re to refuse to revere him as the rightful Lord, not only of the universe, but of one's life, right? Of one's life. And again, this is the case with the sinful heart. Like Pharaoh, we are unwilling to abdicate the throne. We don't want to make room for Jesus let alone submit to him, right? Denying ourselves. What we learn consistently in Scripture is that salvation is by grace, meaning that in order for sinful mankind to believe in Jesus and turn from sin and thus abdicate the throne, he or she must be first regenerated, made alive spiritually to behold and believe in Jesus and bend the knee. Now, before moving forward, we should not be surprised at Pharaoh's initial response. For the Lord has already prepared Moses and Aaron for this, right? In fact, we saw this in Exodus 4.21. The Lord promised to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people of Israel go. So what's the takeaway here? I'm going to have at least one or two takeaways for every point. So Pharaoh's response, what is the takeaway? What do we learn from Pharaoh's mistake? Unlike Pharaoh... Get off the throne and acknowledge God as the true Lord. What was Pharaoh unwilling to do? Get off the throne and acknowledge God as the true Lord. He wanted to be the true Lord. And again, what is he going to see very quickly? God is Lord and you are not. God is Lord and we are not. So unlike Pharaoh, get off the throne and acknowledge God as the true Lord. 
Now let's look at Israel's response. And honestly, Israel doesn't do that much better, really. They don't. Moses and Aaron's request of Pharaoh results in what? Greater hardship, greater workload, more suffering for the people of Israel, which is a bummer, right? Pharaoh views their request for rest, a, a respite for worship in the wilderness, as laziness on the part of Israel. They're just lazy. They don't want to work. So he increases their workload. And no longer is he going to provide straw for making bricks. You've got to do that as well, but you've got to still meet your quota. Oh, snap. Exodus 5, 6 to 8, the, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. They're lazy. Now, we can empathize with the Israelites here. Things don't always work out as we'd hoped, right? I mean, raise your hands if you've been there. Things didn't work out the way you'd hoped or expected, right? We expect one thing, maybe a raise. Maybe a good diagnosis, but that's not what you received because that's not always the case. What enables God's people to persevere during such times of, of disappointment and heartache? What enables us as God's people in Christ to persevere in the midst of such times as disappointment and heartache? A deep trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God. I want to look at three passages for Israel's response. First is Exodus 5.15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? What's the mistake here? What did they do wrong? They pursue an audience with, with Pharaoh and not the true Lord. Come on, guys. The, the Lord who has already revealed himself and promised rescue and deliverance. I mean, they, they should have gone to the Lord, but they don't. They go to Pharaoh. This pseudo-lord, this false lord, this pretender. What's the takeaway? And you're thinking, I would never do that. We do that all the time, right? When things don't go our way, we run and complain to people. Or we yell. We take it out on those we love. But what should we do initially every time? We should first seek an audience with the, with the Lord. With the Lord. So here's the takeaway. When distressed... Go to the Lord first in prayer. Again, naturally, we look elsewhere for peace and comfort. Bring your cares before the throne of God. Call out to him in confidence. Psalm 86, 6 and 7. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Again, verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. What faith, what trust. Exodus 5. Here's the next passage. Exodus 5, 20 and 21. <laughs> they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. So again, uh, the, the foreman of the Israelites, they, they seek an audience with Pharaoh first. Moses and Aaron are kind of waiting outside. They're fired up now because Pharaoh hasn't changed his mind. He's given them some pretty disappointing news, right? I mean, workload increases, uh, but you still got to make the same amount of bricks. How are we going to do that? They met with Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge. I mean, they're essentially calling down judgment on Moses and Aaron. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Again, Pharaoh can't be reasoned with. 
Israel's cries for mercy are met with a deaf ear. And then Exodus 5, 17 to 18, but he said, again, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Now, the response of the foreman of the people of Israel is ironic. Rather, rather than asking their God-given leaders, right, the God-appointed leaders for help, Moses and Aaron, they call down God's judgment upon them. <laughs> they blame Moses for their worsening plight. Moses was a sent one, right? I mean, essentially, he was an apostolos. He was a, an apostle. He was a sent one by God, authorized to speak God's words. He was a prophet. He was a divinely appointed leader. In rejecting Moses, they were in turn rejecting who? They were rejecting the Lord. For Moses and Aaron were God's spokespersons, spokespeople. Sure. This prepares us for a prominent theme in Exodus. Israel's rejection of Moses, which is essentially a rejection of who? The Lord. When trouble comes, where does Israel cast their blame? In the direction of who? Poor Moses, man. <laughs> he gets smoked all the time. And again, this brings to light a greater problem or issue, which is mankind's rejection of divine instruction. Acts 7, 51 and 52. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And don't we do the same thing, friends? Don't we do the same thing? We ignore biblical teaching. We blame others for our circumstances. We fail to trust the Lord. What's the takeaway here? Honor your leaders and trust the Lord no matter what. Honor your leaders and trust the Lord no matter what. Exodus 6, 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Why didn't Israel listen? Moses has just delivered the good news of God's rescuing grace. In the previous verses, God declares, I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. But they don't listen. Why? The text says that they suffered from a broken spirit. The Hebrew literally reads, they suffered from shortness of breath, which means impatience. They suffered from impatience. They were enslaved by their circumstances. They were unable to hear God's cry of freedom, his promise to liberate, because they couldn't see past their pain. More than that, they couldn't see past their sin. Theirs was a trust problem. Theirs was a sin problem. Israel would not listen to God's good news because they were enslaved to sin. Things weren't happening according to their timetable, so they simply threw their hands up. Israel had unbiblical expectations. They were driven by their circumstances rather than a deep trust in the Lord and his promises, his goodness, his character, his faithfulness. His sovereignty, which he's already shown. They wrongly assumed, the Israelites wrongly assumed that the path of the Lord would be free of hardship, free of suffering, and free of pain. And don't we fall prey to that same lie? I know I have. Let's take a lesson from Paul here. Man, Paul's my boy. Philippians 4, 10 to 13. We covered this a few months ago. 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, talking to the Philippian believers, but you had no opportunity. And listen to what he says here. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul was not driven by circumstances, but a deep joy in knowing the Lord and trusting the Lord and his promises. Again, certainly we, we struggle with this too. I know all of us do. We don't get what we want or, or what we think we deserve or when we think we deserve it. And we complain to and criticize God. Who's been there? The hearts of the people of Israel are revealing. What's missing? What's missing with Israel? Trust. Why? Because they don't know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. To know the Lord refers to much more than academic knowledge. Rather, it refers to a personal relationship. Right? The verb to know in Hebrew is very interesting. One of the verbs to know. Yada. Yada. It's used between a husband and a wife. Yada. To know. It denotes intimacy and mutual trust. T. Desmond Alexander writes, To have knowledge about the Lord is not sufficient. We must know him personally. And thankfully, through Christ we can. Amen? Through Christ we can know the Lord. Now what's the takeaway here before we get to Moses? Build on good, solid doctrine. Israel, I believe, was doctrinally deficient. What did they not know in the deep recesses of their hearts? That God is faithful, God is good, and God is sovereign. All right, let's see how Moses did. Moses' response. First, how do Moses and Aaron portray the Lord to Pharaoh? This is really important. How do they speak of the Lord to Pharaoh? Exodus 5.3. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest, now underline this, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. Moses and Aaron appear to veer from the script here, what God had initially told them in Exodus 3.18. They add the phrase, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Why did they include this? Why did they include that, do you think? They fear God. <laughs> and they want Pharaoh to see that the Lord is not to be trifled with. This was a serious matter. Whenever we share the gospel, the good news of God's rescue... We must also convey the bad news, God's wrath against sinners. Amen? We so often leave that out. We must speak of God's judgment. Again, if, if you shared the gospel with me and I didn't know Jesus or I hadn't heard the gospel, hey, brother, you need to be saved. I'd say, saved from what? What's the bad news that I need saving from, right? So again, they're inserting what? Judgment language. God is not to be trifled with. And as Doug Stewart notes, he was a prophet of mine. It's so funny. He says, ironically, it was the Egyptians, not the Israelites, who would eventually be struck with plagues, the tin, and the sword. <laughs> Pharaoh has been warned. He's been warned. Next, we are to see the, the juxtaposition between the Israelites and Moses. The form, so where did, where did the foreman of Israel go? Where did they go first? Who did they go to? To Moses? No. To the Lord? No. They went to who? They went to Pharaoh. Whereas Moses goes where? 
Moses goes to the, to the Lord. That's Exodus 5, 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Now, I mean, if we're going to grade Moses on his response, but he did go to the Lord. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Come on, God. That's what he's saying, essentially. Unlike Israel, Moses brings his frustrations in a very raw way to the Lord in prayer. But like Israel, Moses has unrealistic and unbiblical expectations. The Lord told Moses that Pharaoh would, would do what? He wouldn't listen. God is still faithful. The fact that Pharaoh does not listen is fulfillment of promise. God said he wouldn't listen. Moses thinks things are moving too slowly. Remember, God is preparing to display his power, his glory, his majesty in an unprecedented way before Israel and the nations. The Lord is saying, trust me, watch and see. Whereas Moses and Israel are saying, why not now? Come on, God, get to it. Like Israel, Moses was not able to see beyond his circumstances. He failed to cling to God's promises. And we struggle with this as well. Let's be honest. You find yourself following the Lord, yet things get worse. How do we fight the ensuing discouragement? We look to the Lord and we hold to his promises. Amen? We look to the Lord and we hold to his promises. So what's the takeaway here? In the storms of life, be sure to hold on to the promises of God. Exodus 6, 12 and verse 30. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Verse 30. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses' response here is reminiscent of his response in Exodus 4.10. It appears that Moses is still looking for a way out. He's still looking to be excused. He still doubts the Lord. Now get ready for this. This is cool. How does the Lord answer Moses' excuses and lack of trust? How does the Lord respond? We're almost there, but this is kind of a preface. He acts. God acts. In the following chapters, God displays his matchless power by performing what? The plagues, these supernatural signs. Now, listen, we've we got to sympathize with Moses a bit here. Pharaoh has flat out said what? No. And now his own people, the Israelites, have rejected him. Moses is feeling beat down. The problem, however, is it's with Moses' sight, not his tongue. He continued to look inward rather than Godward. What does God say in Exodus 6.29? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. God is saying, Moses, trust me. I am the Lord. I will act on my saving promises. God is saying, I am the answer. I am the Lord. We must remember those four words. I am the Lord. How often do we forget that the he is the Lord? Tim Chester writes, I am the Lord is a declaration of God's control over people, nature, history, and other gods, and a declaration that defiance is folly. It's folly. He is the Lord. So what's the takeaway here? The importance of perseverance. Keep remembering, he is the Lord. Trust and obey him. A quick word on the, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, and then we're going to look at God's response. 
to end our time. Why this interruption? Why this long genealogy? I had a professor that did her entire dissertation at Cambridge on genealogies. Oh my goodness, can you imagine spending four years on genealogies? Maybe you love that. Maybe that's what you do when you go home. Goodness. They're important. They're really important, by the way. It's God's word, but you know, you'd think you would have, I don't know, like the cross, the names of God. But no, she wanted to study genealogies, and she did. So why, why this interruption? It's not an interruption. It's meant to authenticate and affirm their leadership. Moses shows up. Remember, he just shows up walking out of the desert. When people do that, you should be wary. He just walks out. He shows up walking out of the desert, claiming to be God's man, claiming to have a message from the Lord. What the genealogy declares is that these men, Moses and Aaron, are true Israelites, called and commissioned by God to lead his people. And that's Exodus 6, 26 and 27. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Just so you remember, those guys. And that's their background. Last thing is God's response. And we're going to see something in the original Hebrew that I think is going to blow your mind. So if you're asleep, wake up. I will come shake you. Israel, Moses, and Aaron, obviously, are disappointed. They're upset. Pharaoh has been provoked. Emotions are high. How does the Lord respond? This is a mess. It's a mess. Exodus 6, 6 to 8. Here's God's response. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will. I am and I will. I am and I will. He is Lord, and this is what he promises to do. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Who is the subject here? Who is promising to do great things? The Lord. He points, and this is in your notes, he points to his character and his word, his promises. I am and I will. Keep that in mind. And if you're not here, you won't. This, the word of God, will reorient you daily to remember who he is and what he's promised. Amen? I am and I will. He begins by saying, I am the Lord. This is covenant language pointing back to the patriarchs and the Abrahamic covenant. God is saying, I am the God of promise. You better get ready. You better get ready. And now what does God promise? Bullet points. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. They are burdened right now. I'm going to bring you out. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I'm going to judge those who are opposing you. Number four, I will take you to be my people. I'm not just going to save you and leave you homeless. I'm going to take you to be my people. I will be your God. Are you kidding me? And you're thinking, man, these sound too good to be true. These are true for us in Christ, amen? 
I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The phrase, I am the Lord, frames God's promises. It's his way of saying, I will do it. I am the Lord. I will do it. I am the Lord. Now, here's the Hebrew. This is, I, I doubt any of you know this. Maybe you do. But this is really cool. So wake up. Look at your neighbor and say, wake up. I'm not assuming anybody's asleep right now. But if you are, wake up. This is so cool. This is the coolest thing. Each of the verbs that we train... Now, what, what tense is used in these promises? I will is what? Past tense? No. What is it? If you say, I will do something, what tense is it? It's future tense, okay? So each of the verbs that we translate as I will are actually in the Hebrew past. Lip. Think about that. That doesn't make sense. Why would they do that? It's called the prophetic perfect in Hebrew. They are to be read as events that have already been completed, but they haven't been completed. Why use the past tense? Because when God promises something, it's as good as done. Are you kidding me? How cool is that? I thought heads would explode. I really did, but maybe not. The prophetic perfect is used to describe a future event as if it has already happened. That is remarkable. Because God has promised it, it's as good as done. <coughs> Friends, Kaiser writes, For so certain was God of their accomplishment that they were viewed as having been completed. God is saying, what I promised, it's as good as done. Wow. That is phenomenal. Amen. I knew studying Hebrew, there'd be some payoff, right? <laughs> Grinding. Now, what is God promising in these verses? We're almost done. What is he promising in these verses? Rescue. Did you hear? Adoption. Divine presence. And a holy place in which to dwell with his people. The Lord is depicted in these verses, what we just read in chapter 6, as a shepherd going after his lost and abandoned sheep. And as a father seeking to redeem his enslaved son. There's one more image worth noting here. In Exodus 6, 6, God says, I will redeem you. Ga'al in Hebrew, Ga'al. He reveals himself as a redeemer. He is the redeemer. Now, in Hebrew culture, a redeemer was one who acted as an avenger, a protector, a provider. He was a family member, a kinsman. God is saying, Israel, you are my child. Remember chapter 4? It's my son. That's my boy. I'm going to get him. And when Christ left heavenly glory, what did he say? Those are my people. Those are my children. I'm going to get them. I'm your father, and I've come to rescue you. Wow. This is the focus of Exodus 5 and 6. This is where we are meant to look in times of trouble frustration and doubt. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're frustrated. We are called to look back to the Lord and his word. God reveals himself as both father and rescuer of his people. Amen? How does Exodus 5 and 6 point to Jesus? Are you kidding me? <laughs> the Exodus points to the greater Exodus to come. We need to be rescued. Amen? There is a greater slavery and it has eternal ramifications. 
If you don't trust in Jesus, you will spend an eternity in hell under the wrath of God forever. But the good news is Christ came. He is our rescuer. As we sing about today, our debt has been paid. He lived the life we cannot live. He died the death we deserved at the cross, and he rose again, proving all his claims are true. The cross worked. A door, a way has been opened for sinners like us to be rescued and brought back into fellowship with God. Amen? You know, if you were going to summarize the Bible, it is God's story of rescue. Amen? But that rescue came at a great cost. Jesus laid down his life for us. He bled and he died so that we could be redeemed. And those promises are true for us today as well. Adoption, amen? A place where a holy God will dwell with his people, that is our future, amen? I mean, I look forward to that. The, the new heaven and the new earth, where there's going to be no more tears and no more death and no more mourning and no more evil and no more sin. The gospel is good news, and it's good news for sinners. And like I said earlier, when you hear the gospel, I want you first to hear the bad news. And the bad news is this. Us on the throne equals death. Us on the throne equals eternal separation. So get off the throne and trust in Jesus. He is a good king. And Clark would correct me. No, Daddy, he's a great king. I, I know that, bud. <laughs> he is the king. Amen? That loved us so much that he died for us and rose again to save us. Trust in him. Follow him. And then gather with his people and worship him and live for him and proclaim him because he's worthy. He's worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, our response to all that you are and all that you've done is to collectively declare you are worthy. You are worthy. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. We thank you that the promises that you've made are as good as done because of their source. They come from you, our true and faithful God. I pray that when we find ourselves beat down, discouraged, hurting, suffering, that we would remember what you communicated so graciously to Moses and the people of Israel, that God, you are and you will. We love you and ask these things in your name. Amen.